Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We are seven years on, Tom, from the economic crisis and still struggling to get past a 2% annual growth rate in the U.S. and the world uh, is even slower. That is not, they are decidedly not following the advice of John Maynard Keynes. Economic historian Robert Skidelsky is Keynes' biographer, and he is nice enough to join us now. Uh, One can only imagine um, Lord Keynes uh, saying, did you learn nothing? You know, did anybody read my book? Uh, is anybody interested in the general theory, uh, Lord Skidelsky? Because uh, fiscal uh, action is the one thing that has really been missing in this recovery. Absolutely. And, uh, and in fact, um, I think um, uh, a reliance on monetary policy alone has, shown to, uh, has been shown to be inadequate. I mean, there was a little item um, someone said earlier um, uh, that uh, lowering, lowering rates doesn't necessarily uh, produce an increase in output. And um, that is exactly true, because you can reduce the cost of borrowing, um, but you still have to um, uh, have profit expectations such that people will want to borrow even at the lower cost. And if, the, you know, if, if, if your profit expectations uh, are really down, uh, damaged, you, you, you know, it's very difficult to get <laughs> the rate of interest below a declining um, expectation of profit. And I think that's one of the things Keynes said. And he said then that if, that, if you get into that situation where monetary policy really doesn't work, um, then you have to have fiscal policy. And the trouble with fiscal policy is that um, as a result of uh, stopping the slide down um, to another Great Depression, governments got burdened with terrific debts. And so they then thought, well, you know, we can't have, um, you know, deficits of 10% of GDP and and, and that sort. So we've got to have a fiscal consolidation. So fiscal policy was really ruled out. Monetary policy um, is is, is a weak tool of recovery. And so we get the results that we have, which is very hard to get growth up. Uh, elevated unemployment, and in some of the world, like Europe, um, really uh, output not recovered to pre-crash levels. Good morning, Lord Skidelsky. Wonderful to speak to you again today from London. Um, A careful read of your primer on Keynes from a few years ago is most sobering as well. If we have politics that says we must constrain our budgets, what is the alternative that, that we have to get to? What is the economic theory that needs to be reinvigorated? Well, one of the, one of the most important things is don't get into this situation in the first place. Um, because once you're in a hole, it, 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 then it becomes complicated because all in issues of confidence, expectations, um, and so on, um, start operating. And particularly when um, one, uh, governments, uh, many governments are reliant, are reliant on foreign um, bondholders. So you've got to try and not get there. And one of the things wrong 
with um, economic policy before the crash was that they didn't think this could happen. They thought that if they um, just were able to keep um, inflation um, at, at a constant rate, the um, economies would be more or less stable, and you didn't have to worry about what was going on in particular sectors. And, and, and I think they didn't pay attention to, to the financial system at all. They, they just thought it would be okay, it was self-regulating, that disasters were so unlikely that um, you, you didn't reasonably have to have to consider them. And um, I think that was what went wrong. And that was the fault of economic theory, macro theory, as it was taught mm. and applied before the crash. I, I mean, I look at uh, Mike McKee Keynes, The Return of the Master. Folks, I can't say enough about it. It's your, it's your cliff notes on uh, Robert Skidelsky uh, uh, instead of the 3,000-some pages of his magisterial volumes. <laughs> you, can, you can go through 200 pages and really get a terrific perspective on this engaged uh, debate. What did the inflationistas get wrong? Um, the inflationistas, well, they, 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 what they got wrong was um, in assuming that all you had to do um, was just to keep um, inflation at a constant rate. Um, that was Milton Friedman. He said, provided you can just keep inflation at a constant rate, then the macro, you would have removed the main destabilizing um, feature in, in economic life. People would have settled expectations. There would be an anchor there. The central bank would always um, do anything, anything uh, necessary to hit the inflation target. And that would make everything else go sort of more or less all right, right. except except for shocks that, you know, you, you, it wasn't reasonable to predict. I want to follow up on that inflation idea, because Keynes was not operating in a very in an extraordinarily low inflation world, uh, quite the opposite. Uh, what do you, how do you think he would have incorporated uh, sort of uh, zero inflation, uh, deflation threat um, into his theory? Well, you see, by the time he was writing, uh, came to write the general theory, you had had the Great Depression, and their prices were falling. Well, he wrote the Great Depression against a greater uh, general theory, against a background of falling prices, deflation. Um, admittedly, earlier on in the 1920s, uh, early 1920s, there was, there was sort of big inflation, uh, hyperinflation after the First World War. And then he, that was his monetarist phase, if you like. He then said, look, we've got to get, get rid of the gold standard and have monetary policy that can target inflation. So that's why Milton Friedman regarded his tract on monetary reform, 1923, as his best book. And mm -hmm. the general theory is now unfortunate and unfortunate uh, regression. Right. Um, but you see, he, uh, this is a point I've often made, that economic theories and policies are very dependent on circumstances. What the right policy is in one set of uh, circumstances right. isn't necessarily the right yeah. policy in another. Lord Skidelsky is with us. He is the uh, truly iconic biographer of John Maynard Keynes. Lord Skidelsky, we treasure the guests that we speak to that have links to the past. It is wonderful that the Nobel laureate, Michael Spence, spends time with us. He studied with John Hicks at Oxford long and far ago. Paul Krugman today revisits his plea that modern economics respect 1939, 
John Hicks. The thrust of the laureate from Princeton's comments is simpler is better. What does Robert Skidelsky get out of complex modern mathematical economics? Well, uh, I don't. Um, I, I think um, you know, mathematics and economics is here to stay. Um, it's um, use. It's very useful. Um, but it can be extremely distracting. It can prevent you from um, seeing uh, the wood for the trees. And I think uh, that's happened. And particularly mathematical, um, mathematical um, formulae in defense of wrong theories um, can be very, very hard to see through and attack. And I think uh, a lot of maths is a defense. Uh, it's sort of almost um, something erected to stop seeing people seeing what, um, what, what's going on. And I think it has another big defect. Most people can't understand it. Um, so it, um, it confines the circle of discussion. Um, to very, very few people, and the basic and certain basic ideas, which is that if you know if people have stopped spending, uh, the economy is going to uh, is going to sink, and the government has to do something about it. The basic common sense ideas like that um, tend to get lost in this labyrinth of uh, mathematical theorizing. So I think maths can be, excessive maths can be a big, big drag on understanding what's going on. Well, that is, was exactly uh, Paul Krugman's point, that if you had uh, looked at a simple model of uh, the ISLM, uh, yeah. that you would have concluded the government needed to do something. And he makes the further point, though, that uh, at the zero lower bound, the curves actually stop curving, they go flat because yep. you, you can't take it negative. And he said that there, there you have an issue for theory about what do you do next. Uh, yeah. the, cent the central banks, uh, many of them have concluded you, you use negative interest rates. To, That's right. And uh, you have uh, just written uh, uh, very recently um, that that is not necessarily a good idea. No, because you might then get a downward race between negative interest rates and profit expectations. I mean, how low, how low do you have to go? I mean, the thing is that if, um, if, uh, if, if profit expectations are very, very depressed, I mean, you've got to get the, the, the interest rates below, below the depressed level of the profit expectations. And, I mean, at some point, it's just not worth, not worth it for banks to do that. I mean, they then start um, saying, okay, um, uh, that you you store your cash, um, uh, or I mean, and it's it's certainly not part. It's not it's not um, mm -hmm. it's not a profitable for for people who make deposits to get uh, negative interest rates. They start putting their cash into into strong boxes. So you can only do that to a limited extent, and and and. Broadly speaking, the zero-bound limit um, on interest rate policy stands. Mm -hmm. You can try and tweak it a little bit, but it stands, and yeah. then you have to think of something else. In the time that we've got left with you, Lord Skidelsky, we would be honored to have you opine on negative interest rates. This isn't in 1923 or 1936, Keynes, is it? Yeah, well... Keynes never really had to, to, to face that problem. He did a bit in the, in, the, in the Great Depression when he really came to the conclusion that although um, you ought to fling everything at a very, very um, a deep depression, and particularly uh, quantitative easing. I mean, he, he recommended that very, very strongly in 1930, 1931. At a certain point, um, you find that it doesn't do the job. 
it uh, limits the damage possibly it produces a mod- moderate recovery but it doesn't actually mm-hmm. uh, it actually doesn't lift the, uh, the economy back to, to, to its previous level and, and President Obama was quite right when he said the US has recovered uh, is 10 percent above pre-crash and Europe isn't and, and the, the main reason for that I think is that um, the United States had a much uh, a more liberal uh, fiscal response uh, to the depression than the Europeans. I mean, they really did use fiscal policy. The Americans always uh, say they don't like budget deficits. In practice, they've been actually quite right. tolerant of budget deficits. Yeah. Robert Skidelsky, thank you for the briefing. We greatly appreciate it. Lord Skidelsky, for years at University of Warwick, among other tenures, and of course, the great Keynes uh, biographer. Well, we are uh, watching with interest events back in the United States yesterday. Janet Yellen, who uh, was up on Capitol Hill for the second day, testifying before Congress uh, to monetary policy. And we did see a bit of a turn in the markets after her performance. Not a lot, but uh, maybe uh, we could say that uh, the markets are, uh, have a little bit more respect for the possibility of a rate hike uh, in the in this year, put it that way, not in the near future, but this year. Jerome Schneider uh, is the head of short-term portfolio management for PIMCO. He joins us now. Um, did you change anything uh, from an investment standpoint or even uh, your own opinion based on what the Fed chair had to say? Not, not too terribly much. And good morning, good afternoon to you, gentlemen. Um, at this point in time, you know, it's more of a wait and see. The data-dependent Fed is going to remain data-dependent. The the big messaging changed back with the Fed announcement and, and the subsequent um, the subsequent discussion in the press conference. It, I think what we have to really realize at this point in time, and you said it at the top, was the market is continuing to expect very minimal changes in tightening policy from the Fed. You know, we're still pricing out not only uh, the less of a 100% probability of a rate hike, a single rate hike this year in 2016, but actually throughout 2017 at this point in time as well. And, and I think you need to compare and contrast that to the Fed's expectations. While they've come down significantly with their SEP, the dot, so to speak, you know, we're still, they're still expecting somewhere between an aggregate four hikes over the course of this year and 2017. So that reconciliation process between Fed expectations and market expectations is going to still be, be a little bit troubling for the market. And, and while we've bounced, bounced off the, the low rates that we saw about a week ago, um, you know, it, it's really it's really more of a, a risk on risk off notion as opposed to a recalibration or re-expectation of what the Fed's going to do at this point in time. Were you surprised by the seeming U-turn the Fed made when uh, we went into the May jobs report with everybody expecting that they would be raising rates in June and then all of a sudden were off the table until the end of the year, if that. Well, I wouldn't say that we're necessarily surprised by the Fed, but you're surprised by the data. And the second derivative of that is surprised by the market's reaction to the data. The Fed's been very clear. They basically had an option, almost a free option over the previous course of this year, that they had the degrees of freedom by being data dependent. It worked positively. It gave them basically a good amount of credibility to react to data as it 
it was improving, giving some leash as financial conditions ebbed and flowed accordingly in, in January, February, and March. And, and when things started to improve, they leaned on that data dependency, became more vocal. And, and unfortunately, when we got the jobs report last time, it went the other way. So that data dependency worked against them in two ways. One, obviously, it wasn't showing an economy from their point of view, or really from the market's point of view, somewhat debatable, um, that, that was as positive as they had hoped. But it also really impeded their credibility. And so that optionality, that data dependency, became a question of credibility, ultimately, in their turn. And so they had to do something to reconcile that. How did they do that? They reconciled it through the SEP, the longer-term expectations of rates, growth, et cetera, and tried to get closer to the market's expectations. The, the market, yeah. accordingly, obviously, you know, said, this is really bad data. Um, but we'll wait and see if that holds and if it was a one, you know, a, a one-hit wonder, so to speak. <laughs> if this all turned on the data we saw on Jobs Day for uh, the May payrolls report, can it change that much uh, again the other way should payrolls rebound? Yeah, absolutely. And, and all you have to do is look at history. And, and as one of my colleagues yesterday pointed out, look at 2004. Um, back in February 2004, you had an employment report that was really disappointing. It was the um, March release of the February report. Um, and when you look at it, it was a release of positive 21,000 of jobs created. And then the subsequent month in March, which was um, released in early April, you had an expectation of positive 300-odd thousand. So it whipsawed back the other way positively. And then you basically had a sequence which led to a Fed hike only a mere, you know, basically two months later in June. And obviously June of 2004 mm -hmm. led to a hiking sequence. So. The data does change, can change historically quickly, and you can have anomalies. I, I'm not necessarily suggesting that this data, um, this data may or will, but I do think that there's actually some positive undertones in the data that many people dismissed very, very quickly based on the headline data. Yeah. It's very dangerous at this point in time. Jerome, uh, we rarely talk to people where two, year, two years is long term. Uh, it's great to talk to somebody in the short term space. Don't, don't call me short sighted, though. No, I will not do that. But w within this, is the idea of what do you look at when you come in in the morning as a measurement of fear within the liquidity markets. It used to be commercial paper, LIBOR, OIS, and that. Is there a measurement now, or are things so distorted you're flying blind? No, you, you're definitely not flying blind, but you, you <laughs> might not be able to fly with visual sightings. And, and I think that's where we are in the marketplace. People for many years, 40 years, in fact, before the financial crisis, you know, flew by visual sightings, just looked out the window. Hopefully they figured out where they were. But then you had indicators that sort of had points of stress, as you alluded to, LIBOR, OAS, CP. I actually would suggest that we get back to the more vanilla indicators at this point in time, because some of them have gotten distorted as we've gotten to that zero bound. Uh, but, you know, in terms of fear, you can look at repo markets. You can look at repo functioning. You know, today you have, you know, repo rates trading north of 50 basis points, north of the interest on excess reserves level. And, and not necessarily that's a sign of immediate fear, but it's a sign of just mild, mild, I'll call it stress preparation, liquidity management that you might see in the market over the, you know, over the next 48 hours. And, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't take anything more than that. But it does give you an insight of where who needs funding, what needs to be fund, funded, and, and it gives you a relative sense based upon where the Fed ideally would like their risk-free rate to be. So, you know, repo, repo rates to me get back, gets back to the original plumbing of the financial system and becomes a very important indicator. And, and then the second element to that is obviously where short-term treasuries are trading, not only T-bills, but short-term treasury coupons in, in relation to the, Fed, um, the Fed's benchmark rates. And, and, uh, and there's been a reasonable amount of selling in that front end, anticipation of raising some liquidity over the past few weeks. But again, nothing systemic. I just think it's more of a tactical issue at this point in time. 
Were you satisfied with Janet Yellen's answer that the Fed is aware of your concerns about liquidity but doesn't think there's any problem? Um, absolutely. And, and I think that there are overall concerns, and most central banks are, and, and people have been very public over the past few weeks about how they think about managing liquidity, et cetera. So in this world, in this environment, you know, central banks were unaware, um, sometimes people could arguably say oblivious to liquidity management issues. And and now, as we've evolved, they've not only, they're not only not oblivious, but they're quite well prepared. And communicating that prepared game plan is one, is one prophylactic to that. So it's very important to identify that central banks have become more proactive, you know, to, to manage liquidity and have forced institutions, banks, and, and other people to be to be as aggressive. You know, at Pimco, mm-hmm. we're very, have always been very active in liquidity management and reacting dynamically yeah. to that. So it's something. It's part of our blood or part of our DNA for sure. It's part of your DNA, but the DNA didn't work at negative interest rates. What do you do with a German two-year? I mean, you're in the bunker. You've got portfolio managers bugging you. You've got your own portfolio responsibilities. What do you do with a Danish negative, a German negative, a Swiss negative? Yeah, so it's, it's very important. It's not so much of a question of what I do. You know, fortunately in the U.S. and most of my clients are dollar-denominated investors. We have to think about the, the second derivative of that reaction. What do the investors who are inflict, infected with those negative interest rates do? And, and as we've moved from a world of you know positive interest rate policy to zero interest rate policy, ZERP to negative interest rate policy, NERP, we got to this world of RERP, relatively attractive interest rate policy. And and most importantly, what that does is creates demand for short-dated U.S. assets because they're still nominally positive even on a hedged basis. So some people might find you know uh, find it attractive to buy um, you know buns and shots uh, you know at negative yields, and 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 they do that for capital preservation or you know perhaps as a trade uh, you know. Per, uh, as a forecast of ECB cuts in the future. But from a pr- capital preservation standpoint, those in, in the front end, what we're trying to do is maintain diversification in our portfolios, reduce that exposure to interest rates, because that is the most volatile subset of a, of a portfolio composition at this point in time, and look broadly you know, about how we can generate income uh, you know, really to outpace even modest inflation. So capital preservation at this point in time is key and foremost by having right. those portfolios low, vo- low in volatility and producing income. Are you using leverage to goose income? How, how quaint that was two decades ago. Yeah, you know, it, it was quaint and, and leverage was cheap and abundant and balance sheets at banks were miscalculated in that sense. You know, there are, there are structural leverage. There are strategies which deploy st- uh, uh, structural leverage um, and, and those happen. But, you know, in terms of our capital man- management pre- management strategies, leverage isn't a key component. It, you know, leverage is fairly priced at this point in time. There isn't necessarily a cheap leverage out there that everybody's running to, you know, systemically. And at the same time, even the leverage that banks use, meaning issuance in commercial paper markets, even borrowing secured or unsecured, is, has, is, it's gotten more f- fairly priced as the cost of capital has been rationalized by, 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 the, by the market and by the uh, regulations that have come into play over the past few years. I want to, before we go, get your opinion on uh, the overnight bank funding rate, which is a new a new measure ginned up by the uh, New York Fed, which apparently, uh, from what I understand, will replace the federal funds rate as the Fed's target and may even replace LIBOR over time as a global benchmark for lending. Yeah, we're, you know, we're always, you know, working with, uh, you know, 
officials to try to figure out, you know, what is the best way to articulate risk and risk-free rates, et cetera. You know, we have to still at the same time be practitioners in the market. So looking at T-bills and repo, as I mentioned before, is, is an effective benchmark for us at, at this point in time. But, you know, we're, we're working with them to identify ways to get a more broad set of the market and most importantly reflect actual activity in the market. And that's their ultimate goal in identifying that, you know, utilizing something where there's a reportable activity. So there's been a lot of discussions, a lot of panels. Um, and, and over the past few years, we've been white papers. And now those white papers are turning in to really some propulsion for the, for the regulators to to come up with something. But don't expect it overnight. And, and I think, you know, yeah. as much as we would like everything converted on a, you know, a flip of a switch and know the announcements, so to speak, it, it's not going to happen. There's structural <coughs> changes moving from a LIBOR benchmark to, to you know, any any mm-hmm. type of OBFR, uh, overnight bank funding rate, um, at this point in time. So stay yeah. tuned, and we could be talking about it for a couple of years. Jerome Schneider, thank you so much. With PIMCO on the short-term space, he's had a short-term portfolio uh, management at uh, PIMCO. In five days, the Henley Regatta begins on the Thames. Um, the only thing I'm not sure of is uh, who to root for. So we are going to turn to our recognized expert on it. He attended both Queen's College at Cambridge and St. Anthony's College at Oxford. So uh, he has a, a very good background in uh, crew. Uh, Mohammed El Aryan. <laughs> He joins us now. He is a Bloomberg View columnist, chief economic advisor at Allianz. Uh, how do you choose sides when you uh, when you are sipping your pims at the regatta, Mohammed? Well, first, good afternoon, gentlemen. It's nice to have you in London. Um, I don't go to the regattas, but choosing side is easy. Whenever it's Cambridge versus Oxford, I always choose Cambridge. Is there a reason for that? Yeah, I, I had a better time. The economics there was much more diverse. They taught you four different schools of thought, everything from neoclassical to Marxist with Keynes and Neo-Ricardian. Oxford mm-hmm. was much more traditional and less um, thought-provoking. Uh, that goes right to our, our theme of the day, Mohammed, as we cannot speak about uh, the political economics of this nation and that is the idea of the orthodoxy with which central banks are working right now. You mentioned four schools. Are we making up a fifth school now with Janet Yellen, Mario Draghi, and the rest of the team? You know, when you think of when central banks are best, it's when they have a good vision of the outlook, when that turns to be correct, and when they have the tools to actually make good change. And I think as Janet Yellen's testimony this week illustrated yet again, all three are lacking, not just for the Fed, but also for other central banks. And I think that's understandable, given the fluidity we're seeing in economics, finance, and politics. We had the, uh, the, the interesting column by uh, uh, Paul Krugman this morning suggesting simpler is better in modeling uh, efforts uh, to to understand the economy, um, but he he did suggest that at the zero lower bound, it is much more difficult to even use simple models. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are fundamental changes. You spoke earlier about the puzzle or the mystery of productivity. There's also the mystery of labor participation. There is also the mystery of how can you have such a big gap between economic mm-hmm. risk-taking or business investment and financial risk-taking. So this is an unusually mysterious world, and I think there's good reasons for that. Um, it has to do with the fact that we are trying to change growth models having exhausted a model that overly depended on finance. First, private finance up to 2008, and since 2008, the use of central banks' balance sheets. Bring this in to game theory. Uh, Professor Krugman today, uh, uh, paying homage to John Hicks in 1939, the idea, as Mike mentioned, of simpler um, systems. I guess simpler leads to a more constructive game theory. In our complexities today, in our mathematics today, have we lost our wiggle room? Have we lost our ability to maneuver in our game? So there's two games going on. I think there's the game that economists slipped into because it looked very sophisticated and rigorous, which is to oversimplify in order to capture human behavior through simple equations. And that has proven to be the wrong approach. It was, and it's one that led to misforecasting and, and bad policy decisions. So we, we somehow assumed away a lot of behavioral finance by trying to pursue mathematical rigor. Um, and I think the profession is recognizing that and is trying to bring back a, a bigger element of behavioral finance into it, and, and that's a good thing. But there's a bigger game going on, which is at the global level, there is very little coordination. And you are playing what Mike Spence, the Nobel Prize winner, calls an uncoordinated, coordinated game. It's supposed to be coordinated, but it's been being played in an uncoordinated fashion, and therefore you get strange outcomes. I mean, this is important, folks, and I'm going to be blunt. A primer here is the only game in town, central banks and instability, Mohammed Alarian. Uh, Mohammed, I've put your book on my reading list on Amazon, and the reason I do is your chapter on game theory. How does Janet Yellen use Alarian game theory? She's trying. They're all trying. They're all trying to understand better how, how, how people behave. I found it interesting yesterday that when she, she was pushed quite hard on negative interest rates, and she came back and said, we, we're not contemplating that. We're not going to do that. And for good reasons. If she looks at what's happening in Japan, people are not responding to negative interest rates the way the textbook would have said they would. You know, the textbook's very simple. The lower you take interest rates, the more you encourage people to spend and invest today. What we're finding is the opposite is happening. Why? Because, because human behavior is such that it starts wondering why are interest rates so absurdly low or negative, and they start disengaging from the system. You see this in, in Japan, where households are taking their cash out of banks, and they would yeah. rather keep it at home. Um, that is counter to what central banks had thought and what the Bank of Japan in particular was hoping for. Do you expect then maybe the Bank of Japan or the ECB to reverse course on that? No. If anything, I expect them to do more, but not through interest rates, but through their balance sheet. So we're going to have this very strange situation whereby the U.S. will slowly normalize. Remember, the loosest tightening in its history. 
whereas the ECB and the Bank of Japan are going to press even harder on the QE accelerator. I don't think they're going to venture deep into negative territory and interest rates because they're starting to see the adverse economic and political consequences. But I suspect they will use their balance sheets even more. With us, Mohammed El Arian, his book is, is Must Read, The Only Game in Town. Dr. El Arian, what's great is you turn the page of your book and there's an insight in a little El Arian get the, the knife out jab. You have a beautiful few pages on Rajan of Chicago and of the RBI in India. He is exiting as head of their central bank, and he's on a panel, and Elarian mentions that Rajan is criticized as a member of the BIS Brigade. What is the BIS Brigade, and is Mohammed Elarian a card-carrying member? So the BIS Brigade in that discussion was referred to people like him, like me, who worry that years of experimental policies by central banks have led to major market distortions, artificially elevated asset prices, and will have unfortunate spillover effects for other countries. And Raghu Rajan, the outgoing governor of the RBI, has been the leader of that brigade. He, he's been the one bringing to international discussion this perspective of you cannot ignore the actual and potential spillover effects. And it's a real shame that he's going to be leaving um, the Central Bank of India. Can we get out of this distorted world without enormous pain? It is Janet Yellen and company and the other central bankers around the world, are they going to be able to pull it off? In theory, you can, and what you need for that is sustained, high, inclusive growth. In practice, I think it's going to prove very difficult. And the problem, Mike and Tom, as you know, is not really the engineering. I think most economists agree on what you need. The problem is one of politics. Um, it's, I mean, you can be hopeful. If, if you look at what's coming up in terms of the U.S. presidential elections, um, certainly Hillary Clinton's platform speaks to issues that you need to do, infrastructure spending, tax reform, um, investing in, in education. And if you look into Europe, one hopes for some sort of wake-up call in terms of completing the regional um, architecture and moving forward on growth-enhancing policies. Well, you mentioned uh, Hillary Clinton looking for infrastructure growth. The president, uh, President Obama, uh, telling John Micklethwaite and company in uh, the Business Week interview out today that that's his greatest economic frustration is he hasn't been able to do more infrastructure growth. Uh, the next and maybe last thing in the central bank toolbox is helicopter money, which it doesn't have to be just money given to taxpayers. It basically refers to financing debt through the central bank. Uh, do you think that could be sold as a way to deal with the politics? Uh, you get the spending, but you don't increase the deficit, so both sides are happy. Um, Mike, that's going to be a really hard step. And it's a very risky one for central banks because it opens them up to political interference. I mean, central banks already are getting very close to the line that separates them from being a monetary institution from, and from being a fiscal institution. They are very close to that line. If they cross that line explicitly, then we risk their political autonomy. And if their political autonomy is undermined, their effectiveness is undermined. So, so I, I think of that not as a second best, 
because it's clearly not the first best. The first best is let's do it directly. Um, I don't I don't view it as the second best. I view it as a fifth or sixth best, and let's let's try to pursue the first best. It is absurd, and I repeat, absurd that we're not pursuing high productivity enhancing inv- infrastructure investment with interest rates so low. Within this is the idea of transparency. It's a word I remember, uh, Mohammed, you talking about transparency. I think it was an event, I'll say 10 years ago at IMF. I can't remember, it was so long uh, ago. What's our next step in banking transparency? I mean, more press conferences, that doesn't get it done, does it? Um, That doesn't get it done. And I think we have to seriously consider whether you can be overly transparent at some point, or put it another way, overly data dependent. Um, it is striking how expectations of a June hike fluctuated so widely in May, April, May, June. You would expect that as we get closer to yeah. the actual FOMC meeting, you would have a convergence. Right. Instead, in those three months, we saw them. We saw three round trips between expectations of over 30% for a rate hike to under 5%. And that tells you that there's something wrong with communication. It also tells you that we're overly mm. data dependent, being whipsawed by every short-term data reading. Mike, I want to set this up because, Mohammed, I'm sure you're very aware of this, providing excellence a few days ago in the important paper of James Bullard of St. Louis was one Michael McKee. Mike, you had the best coverage of that important paper. Frame the paper and then go to Dr. Larian with your important question on Bullard and regimes. Well, basically, Jim Bullard says the standard way of forecasting uh, what's going to happen to the economy and therefore draw the inference for interest rates is a converging model where uh, you add up what you expect to happen in various uh, areas of the economy uh, and then you make the, you guess the the interest rate you would use at that uh, convergence point. But he says uh, we're now in a different kind of economy, uh, a regime economy, where nothing is likely to change, and therefore you cannot forecast what future interest rates will be. And I guess what uh, Tom would like to know, Dr. Ellerian, is uh, your view of Dr. Bullard's thesis. I thought the most important element of President Bullard's paper, which is a really important one, and I encourage people to read it like you have, Mike and Tom, is that he took a major step from a cyclical world to a structural world, Um, a really major step. I mean, central banks have been moving slowly through that world. President Bullard took a major step. What I have difficulty with, whether it is the view that nothing is changing or the view that secular stagnation can continue for the next five to seven years, is that we're seeing an erosion of the two critical elements that have underpinned the last few years. One is that growth, while low, is at least stable. And second, that central banks can effectively repress financial volatility. And those two elements have been key to what we've seen in terms of economic outcomes and financial outcomes. I think both of these factors are now in play. So I like to, to, and you've heard me say this, I like to describe it more as a T-junction. The road we're on is coming to a gradual end, but what comes thereafter is very uncertain. There's nothing predestined yet about what comes thereafter. It depends on choices that will be made over the next few quarters. Precisely, I was hoping you would go here, but the Bullard prescription is to set up more choice sets along the time continuum that lead to more T decisions. And I would suggest Chair Yellen would say a greater prospect 
of making the wrong decision is you go regime to regime to regime. Is that a risk that there's too many T decisions? It is a risk, and it's particularly a risk when you only have one set of tools in play. Um, and that's the irony, is that we have been trying to pursue too many objectives with too few tools, and therefore we've gotten a whole series of improbable. Imagine that we were having this conversation two years ago, and I would have predicted negative normal interest rates, over 30% of global government debt trading at negative yields, China, a well-managed yeah. economy, starting to make policy mistakes, let alone all the politics we've seen. Um, I mm -hmm. think we've got to recognize that if you pursue too many objectives with too few tools, you get a whole series of unthinkables yeah. and improbables. The way to continue this discussion, folks, is to get Mohammed Alarian back on. We will do that as his schedule allows. The other way is to read his book, The Only Game in Town, Central Bank's Instability and Avoiding the Next Collapse. Mohammed Alarian, it's on my read this list, and you should read it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.